I want us to think about uh, a question as we get started. Just a brief hypothetical, and then we're going to read a, uh, a passage of scripture together. So just here's, here's, your, uh, here's your question. Uh, many of you were alive back on September 11, 2001. After 9-11 happened, what were our options? What were the possibilities that we could have pursued? I don't want you to answer that out loud. I just want you to think about it for a moment. And, uh, and we'll, we'll do something with that in just a moment. But remember that question in the weeks and in the year that followed, what were our options after 9-11? Okay, now let's look to Colossians 1. Colossians 1, uh, starting in verse 9, is a beautiful glimpse that, uh, that Paul gives into the way that the early church looked at the world and certainly how he led them. So I want you to hear these words. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and the understanding that the spirit gives so that you might live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God and being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have endurance and patience and giving thanks joyfully to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Then he goes on to talk about the nature of this kingdom of the son and who the son is. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created things in heaven and on earth. Whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, there is so much in a passage like that that is worth unpacking. And it's actually convinced me because of what I've been learning about Colossians uh, this week. It's convinced me to do a more in-depth look with us as a church at some point because it's a shocking and surprising glimpse into how we live in a world uh, that is very, very complicated by empire. Um, and so, so anyways, what I want to focus on is the fact that there's two times in this little passage that Paul uses the word kingdom to talk about where God's people find themselves in. And each time he's talking about a kingdom that is vastly different than their understanding of the kingdom of the world, the political kingdom around them. Okay. And so, so Paul sees his brothers and sisters in Christ as citizens of this kingdom, of the, a kingdom of the Son, Jesus, a kingdom of Jesus. And this was obviously the same kingdom that Jesus spoke over 100 times about in the New Testament. Jesus was obsessed with the idea of kingdom and of God's kingdom coming to the earth in a unique way. Okay, um, But the word kingdom was a loaded word then. 
and it should still be a loaded word now because it was both spiritual and it was political. And we're going to get that into that in, in just a moment. But you can see uh, Paul repeats these ideas in, in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 19. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but citizens with God's people and members of his household. He used that word citizens again, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. So the first idea that we need to just sit with is the fact that Jesus has brought a kingdom that Paul talks about to the early church as being set up and against a worldly idea that there were kingdoms around them because there were. So why does Paul then follow that up with this definition of Jesus being first and foremost in every single way? What we don't realize was that the statement that Paul was making was going up and against all of the parallels of the kingdoms of their time. All right. So, so it's so important that Jesus be first the early church proclaimed Jesus is Lord as their rallying cry, as their greeting, as their confession of faith. The reason they did that was because at the time of Jesus, Caesar is Lord was the way that you would greet one another. Caesar is Lord was the belief that Caesar was the divinely appointed son of God. We have this in writing. We have this statistically, uh, we, or we have this um, historically where coins were stamped with the name of Caesar and the son of God. He was seen as the deity. The Caesar was in charge. His kingdom would go on without end. So when Paul begins to talk about a different kingdom, when Paul begins to talk about a kingdom of God, a kingdom that has a different boundary, a different king, and a different type of subject, then all of a sudden a political statement was being made. And we need to understand why this matters today. Okay? Um, it was so important uh, that for Paul to communicate to his people that they must understand Jesus not as simply a spiritual reality, but a king of a kingdom that affected their lives now. Because until they got this right, they would struggle on every other level with how to live in the world around them. It was about allegiance and it was about identity. Okay, so, so what, early, what my faith background is, Anabaptism, in early Anabaptism, there emerged this understanding. And in the first several hundred years of the church, this understanding was held as well. It was called two-kingdom theology. And that two-kingdom theology held that I am primarily a citizen of the kingdom of God, first and foremost. And then I have what we might call secondary citizenship or ambassadorship in whatever land that I might live in. And it was very important to make those distinctions because it reminded us that my kingdom was fully set apart and different than the kingdom that I might find myself in. And that actually worked really well for a couple hundred years, even though it meant that a lot of Christians, because of their prophetic witness up and against the, the state, were actually persecuted. So it was going really great, and the church was growing in, in beautiful ways, and people were remaining faithful to Jesus until about the year 313. And then this thing happened, it was actually 312 AD. Um, this guy named Emperor Constantine, which sounds a lot like a Star Wars character, doesn't it? Um, so this guy named Emperor Constantine one night has a vision of a sword, or I'm sorry, of a cross on a shield in the sky. And he decides that this is a sign from God that they should continue their war in God's name, that Jesus was with them. And therefore, a year later, he did this thing called the Edict of Milan. So we, we won't get too, too bogged down in, in history. But what the Edict of Milan said was, not only can you no longer persecute Christians, but Christianity should be the new state religion. Everybody should be a Christian. And at that moment, when the Edict of Milan happened, now, 
I have a complicated relationship with this because there's a good chance that many of us would not know Jesus if this hadn't happened. And yet what happened was one of the worst things that could ever happen in Christian history. So have fun living with, uh, with this tension. But anyways, what ends up happening, okay, is that, that all of the leaders of the government also became the leaders of the church. It, it fused as one. So for the first time in history, okay, the line was erased between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And people began to sense that, that maybe they were even one in the same. I mean, for God and country, after all, has been repeated through so many dynasties, not just the American one over the years. And that unique relationship that Constantine started has continued sometimes more overtly and sometimes less. But today, still, figuring out who we are is a struggle. Can we just be both? That's how many people approach it in our world today. And you'll see why this is so important, hopefully, as, as we talk here. But, but many people see themselves simply as American Christians. I'm an American and I'm, an, and I'm a Christian and I hold dual citizenship in these kind of two kingdoms. But here's the challenge. And here's why Paul talks about the supremacy of Christ so much. The challenge is that when we hold dual citizenship, it proves very difficult because certain types of identities demand allegiance. And even if we think that we truly hold dual citizenship, and we can keep those things kind of equal and opposite, here's what tends to happen. When you have multiple identities, much like a marriage that disintegrates because someone is a workaholic, whichever thing is in front of you the most becomes the identity with which you are most fused to. Does that make sense? It becomes the biggest defining identity in our life, whichever we're most exposed to. All right? So back to our first question. I actually don't care about your response. When I asked you about what our options were about 9-11, what I, what I want to know is, and, and I'm, I'm, this is not original, I'm using this because a seminary professor used this on me once, who is the hour in the question that I just asked? When I said, what was our potential responses? Who was our? Did you think about what our country's possible responses were? Did you think about what the government could do? Or did you think, what was the church's response? What could the church have done? 90% of you almost certainly, or maybe more, maybe 100%, even those of us who are professing Christians, our immediate thought is what, what, what the government would have done. What were our options as Americans? Not what were our options as Christians. This is just one small illustration that reminds us that sometimes even, even without trying, our primary identity, we see ourselves as rooted in a country instead of in a kingdom of God. And so, so what I mean is that there's a very subtle thing because what we're confronted with all the time, constantly, is our citizenship as people of America. And this is why some of our practices, like our spiritual prescriptions every single week, are so crucial. Every day, every moment we are confronted with various identities, American identities, political identities, the things on our phones and our laptops and our televisions that reinforce who we see ourselves as, and these days, it's usually very, very one side or the other. And when our lives are spent, however, in constant pursuit and awareness of Jesus, when the priorities of Jesus become the priorities of ours, then we will view these things that are competing for our allegiance in very different ways than we often do when we accept them. Because we know that our deepest identity is in Christ, and that means that we are free to engage in the world in ways that break all sorts of rules. All right. We don't have to live in the constant polarity and duality of the world around us. 
we can choose a third more creative option that understands the kingdom of God as our primary allegiance and then lives out its values accordingly. If your identity is rooted and securely in Jesus as truly, truly supreme over all things, it changes how we see everything else. It changes the things that matter to us and it changes how we act about the things that matter. We're citizens of one land, ambassadors of another. And, this, and the kingdom that we are citizens of Beautifully, every citizen also happens to be a child of the king. What power, what responsibility that we have in this kind of image. So finding our citizenship in the kingdom of God has led historically to very different responses. Some withdraw. The kingdom of God, they understand, is very spiritual, so we should not focus on the physical. Instead, um, the kingdom is, is just of, of the spirit, so it's within my heart, Okay. But the interesting thing is that when Jesus is asked by John the Baptist's disciples, if he was the one to come, the one who would be bringing the kingdom, all right, when he's asked by that in Luke 7, you know, are you the one that would be establishing this kingdom of God? His response was uh, rather physical. What he says is, that, and then the men came to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples, and they say, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the two messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on my account. Jesus is clear about compassion and action uh, during his ministry. So clear, he's too clear for us to withdraw from the world as citizens of the kingdom. Now there's other people, other people who have become so captured with certain values of the kingdom, good ones even, that they seek any means necessary to force it onto people. Their response is much like Muhammad, um, six centuries after Christ, who established himself and the Muslim movement with a kingdom view that we can call triumphalism. So he rejected Christ's way of the cross of suffering and of redemptive love. He accepted the offer of an army and he effectively used political and military power in a campaign for triumph, according to his understanding of the kingdom of God. Our temptations today are similar. Uh, withdraw from the world completely, say it's all too crazy, become such purists that we find fault with every movement and every perspective out there and we don't do anything to make the world more just or more loving or more Christ-like. Or, we lack such imagination that we only use the methods of the world to enact change. We use violence or name calling. We judge and dismiss massive groups of people with a label. We are happy to be quite cozy with the kingdom of the world right up against them as long as it accomplishes our personal wants. We speak of God's values, but our lives and the way that we think look very, very different than the byproducts of the Holy Spirit that Paul speaks of, such as love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and gentleness, faithfulness, the ability to have self-control. As long as we get what we want, the end justifies the means for this group. And by the way, if you think I'm trying to uh, point a finger at a certain group here, nope, Jesus is an equal opportunity sanctifier, okay? So we all need to do this work, all right? If we do, here's the hope. Disciples of Jesus, members of God's church, get to be so different. We are neither disconnected from the world nor pulled along by its values and methods. 
We are neither complicit in injustice and evil, nor are we willing to do evil to convey that doing evil is wrong. Okay, we are radically different than the tribalism that tears apart our world. The people of the kingdom are listeners, willing to admit where they are wrong and where they need to learn. They're truth tellers, but they do so in a way that understands the beauty of God that's in every single human. They're willing to cross deeply drawn lines if that's what love looks like. Unwilling to simply pledge allegiance to whatever ideology they are most drawn to because the supremacy that they believe in is Christ and Christ alone. And the allegiance that they give is to him and him only. It's freeing, it's beautiful. But that puts Christians at odds with the world frequently because we find ourselves asking meaningful questions about love at every turn. We find ourselves turning to prayer in desperate times we find ourselves not reinforcing our natural biases by simply listening to the same news stations over and over again, but rather submitting ourselves to the scriptures and to one another for constant growth and discipling. And then when we do that, guys and girls and ladies and gentlemen, when we do that, we create something beautiful. The church becomes two things. It becomes a taste and it becomes a tool. All right. Uh, just like a Thanksgiving Day meal, right, where the host is is cooking like crazy and, and the family comes a little bit early, right? And maybe some of you have experienced this. And when that happens, the, the cook will cut a few early bits of turkey off while they're carving and give a taste to others, or maybe give a couple of cookies out that were reserved for dessert. But they want to give everyone a taste of what's to come so that they know that what is about to happen is going to be good. So that people understand how good it is just to be in that house right now. The church has a calling to become a an alternative community, a place where the values of the kingdom are at the center, where there is justice and equality, where there are not value distinctions between the rich and the poor, where if someone is in need, someone else shares. The church is called to be a place where words are used not to violently tear down, but to speak life and seek understanding from God and one another. This is who we are and how we are called to function. We may want the world to be like that, but at the very least in here it is. We may long for the world to have systems that value every single black life. And we may long for police officers to be judged individually based on their actions and not their job name. But regardless of if the world is doing that or not, in here we do. And people see it and people taste it and they get a glimpse of what God will one day bring in fullness. And what a gift that is to be that and no Republican president and no Democratic president can do a thing to stop it or enhance it. And we'll do it imperfectly. God knows we already have, but that's all that Jesus was asking that we try. So the church becomes a taste, a little glimpse that another world is possible and it draws others in and reminds us not to become so callous that we lose the ability to practice hope. It means that we trust that the spirit is present so therefore our community is supernatural in what it can be accomplished. But we aren't just a taste. We are also a tool, all right? Much like a garden trowel makes marks in the ground so that seeds can be planted and grow, we too act in the world around us. We don't just hide and create our own happy world with us in Jesus. We know that Jesus took to the streets and brought healing and focus to the untouchables and the overlooked. He went out and he acted. So we do too. We use our voices and our bodies to act for good, but always friends, always in the character of Jesus. 
that of a servant, not fighting for our own rights, but lifting up our neighbors, treating them better than ourselves. We do, not, we do our part to partner with God in bringing his wholeness, his shalom, his peace to the world. But we do so with a difference because Jesus is where our hope lies and where we pledge allegiance. When we get this right, friends, everything else falls into place. When we grasp the kingdom of God, when we grasp that, like Paul says in Colossians, that Jesus is before and above things in both heaven and on earth. And we say, yes, this is the world that I want to live in, a world whose boundaries extend all across the globe, a kingdom whose king also happens to have the heart of a father and whose subjects are elevated as children. This is the world that we get to live in. And when we do that, when we grasp that kingdom and take our place in it, we move away from the constant dualities and spectrums, left, right, center. Those words lose their luster because we start to work for love and justice and compassion for the things and the people that Jesus taught us to love and work for. And the lines that we draw aren't as important. This is not a let's come together talk, okay? This is a challenge to place Jesus so very central in your life that the first thing that you think about all of the time is as a member of the kingdom of Christ, what is the way that Jesus desires me to respond to this moment? Every time we have any opportunity, how can I be the church? How can I imagine a new way of creating space for my community to look more like heaven? And how can I imagine ways to help move our world toward God's heart? And then we ask those questions in the next moment. And then we ask those questions again in the next moment and again in the next moment. That's what it means to be the church. Jesus told us in Matthew 6 to pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. In one way, it already has. That's us. That's the church. We are the taste here on earth of God's kingdom that will one day come in fullness, or at least that's our calling. And in another way, the earth looks very little like heaven, so we have compassionate, just, self-sacrificial work to do. At least that's our calling. Uh, goodness, this is, this is hard, but thank God that the pressure is off. Jesus has risen, and we've been created for this. We've been recreated for this, the scriptures would say. So let's keep our eyes on Jesus and let's pray. Let's seriously, let's pray. Oh Lord, we need you uh, to figure out what it looks like to walk your path, to walk your ways in the world today. We confess that it's all too easy to find our identity in the world and the kingdoms right around us instead of in the kingdom that you've created and designed for us to live in. We pray that you give us wisdom. We pray that you give us conviction. We pray that you give us a third way type of compassion. Where we live in a kingdom that turns the world's values upside down and elevates the meek, the oppressed, the poor in spirit as especially valuable to you, Lord. Help us figure all of this out and help us to do so along with each other, together, in the complicated challenge of community. We pray this all, of, all these things in your name. Amen.